Let us now turn to our second example, another modern translation of Odyssey, Book One, Lines One to Five, by Walter Schuring. Goddess of song, teach me the story of a hero. This was the man of wide-ranging spirit who had sacked the sacred town of Troy and who wandered afterwards long and far. Many were those whose cities he viewed, and whose minds he came to know. Many the troubles that vexed his heart as he sailed the seas, labouring to save himself and to bring his comrades home. How did you find the overall impression of this translation? How does this compare with Latimer's? It seems to me that this one flows more naturally than Latimer's, and it is easier to follow the meaning of the passage too. What was your reaction? Think about the reasons for the impression you got as well. If I try to analyze the reasons why I found it easier to follow, one of them will certainly be that it is a prose translation. Some people will see the very act of translating verse into prose as unfaithful to the original. For the readers who do not know the original will have no idea that this is a poem, but instead will think that this is a novel. On the other hand, the prose style has the advantage of being more familiar to us as the medium of longer texts. We are used to reading long stories. Or news reports in prose, whereas in Homer's time, it was more natural to put long narratives into hexameter verse. If we are to transport or translate that natural feel to the extended narrative, to us prose is the natural choice. So here is another factor we have to take into consideration when reading translation: cultural differences. Can affect the way we appreciate each genre, and sometimes translation can be more effective by crossing genres, such as verse into prose. Walter Schuring was a classics teacher and was fully aware of the many issues surrounding translating Homer. In his epilogue to his translation of the Odyssey, he explains why he translated it the way he did. He also notes pitfalls into which some verse translations have fallen, such as that the regular rhythm of verse can get tedious after a while. He is above all anxious to create something that sounds natural to modern readers. The prose style counts among such features that he used to achieve this effect. How does he compare with Latimer in terms of his choice of words? I expect that you have spotted a number of deviations ensuring from the original and Latimer. To start with, he has goddess of song instead of muse. Teach me the story of instead of tell me of. A hero instead of the man. And moreover. He duplicates the translation of the word andra by putting a hero in one sentence and the man in another. Why did he do this? Let us take muse first. To translate muse as goddess of song, 
is more like a commentary than translation. But it is helpful for modern readers who may not be familiar with Greek mythology. This is something I was concerned about when I looked at Latin more earlier, and Shuring manages to slip in the information that the reader might need almost unnoticed. And instead of saying, Tell me of the man, he says, Teach me the story of a hero. Perhaps this brings out the special relationship between the goddess and the poet more clearly. On the other hand, I feel that it takes away something of the magic of the goddess speaking through the poet with him as her mouthpiece. Another interesting example is Polytropos. Schuring renders it as of wide ranging spirit, which gives a better idea of what the man is like than Latimer's of many ways, though there is no element of spirit in the original word. And what about turning a man or the man into a hero? Perhaps again, here is the translator's helping hand. To prepare modern readers to hold the right sort of expectation by signalling that this is an heroic tale. This is something ancient readers would have known automatically. But there is another complication here too. The late 20th century has developed different sorts of heroes in cinema, sport, or even in everyday life, so that the connotation of the word Hero is ever changing. Each generation will have its own hero or two, which may interfere with the image of the hero which the translator intended to convey. So, with closer scrutiny, you will find that Schuring's translation is freer than some other translations, but I think his major objective is by and large achieved that is, To create a translation accessible and natural to his modern readers. Whether this works with you or not may be tested by asking yourself which would I rather take, Latimore or Schuring, for a long journey or holiday read? And which one would you rather use to study Homer seriously? Let us now go back in time by nearly three centuries. And look at the opening lines of the Odyssey in the poet Alexander Pope's translation of 1725. The man for wisdom's various arts renowned, long exercised in woes, O muse resound, who, when his arms had wrought the destined fall of sacred Troy, and raised her heaven built wall, wandering from clime to clime, observant strayed. Their manners noted and their states surveyed. On stormy seas unnumbered toils he bore, safe with his friends to gain his natal shore. How did you like Pope's translation? Does it sound more or less Homeric than the other two? Was the meaning of the passage clear at the first hearing? I thought that this made a striking contrast to Schuring's. This is unmistakably a poem, put in heroic verse or heroic couplets, 
in which each pair of lines rhymes. Not only the rhyming scheme, but also the wording sounds rather lofty and poetic. Instead of man of many ways, Pope has for wisdom's various arts renowned. A muse is to resound, not tell or teach. The rather pedestrian he sacked becomes his arms had wrought the destined fall, and so on. We still recognize the same sequence of narrative, and the gist of the passage, but Pope has consistently elaborated the expressions to create his poetic style. Have you noticed that he has added so much volume to the passage that the equivalent of Odyssey Book One lines one to five stretches over eight lines in his verse? But you may then ask. Shall we call this a translation of Homer, or Pope's version, his reworking of the tale of Odysseus, roughly based on Homer? Richard Bentley, Pope's contemporary and an eminent classical scholar, famously said of Pope's translation of the Iliad, which was published several years earlier than his Odyssey, "A pretty poem, Mr. Pope, but you must not call it Homer." You can argue that this is also a faithful translation, insofar as it translates poetry into poetry, and it is no surprise, given Pope's talent and accomplishment, that his Homer is widely regarded as the best verse translation to date. Just as the ancient Greek readers heard or read Homer's Greek verse as an original poetic creation. English readers, certainly in Pope's time, would have heard or read it almost as an original poem written in their own language. The vibrant rhythm of the verse and phrases such as "heaven-built wall," "manners," and "states," which hint at the religious and social atmosphere of the poet's age, make us almost forget that this is a translation of an ancient Greek poem. On the other hand, the use of his words, in particular, does remind us of the age in which he lived, and our reading experience of his translation is different again from that of his contemporary readers. So once again, we are made aware of a number of issues surrounding translation. Translators have to make a number of decisions. As to how to translate both the form and meaning of the original, while taking into consideration the cultural and literary backgrounds of the target readers, depending on who the readers are and what their purposes for reading it, even the same translation will be differently received. This is why no two translations look the same. And there is no such thing as the exact translation. We read Homer as mediated by the translator, whose role, we may say, is that of a co-author in recreating an equivalent literary experience for his or her age in another language. Finally, I would like to leave you with a prologue. Of Derek Walcott's *The Odyssey: A Stage Version*, 
published in 1993. This play is a modern version of the Odyssey, which is not a translation but a free recreation of the tale. The prologue is particularly interesting as it was originally intended to be sung on stage and was sung in a style of blues in its 1992 stage production. It has a rhyming scheme which gives it a regular rhythm. Listen out especially for the quotation of the first line of the Odyssey in Greek, which blends in with the rest of Walcott's verse. Also striking are the connections which he makes between different elements of Odysseus' story, such as Penelope and Dawn's rosy fingers, or the note on the singer's lyre and swallow's song, which do not feature in the opening of Homer's Odyssey. So listen and enjoy, and imagine what it would have been like to be ancient Greeks listening to Homer. In their own language, as their contemporary poet. Go and sing about that man because his stories please us, who saw trials and tempests for ten years after Troy. I'm blind, Billy Blue, me main man see smart Odysseus, who the god of the sea drove crazy and tried to destroy. Andra moyen pemusa poluptroponos malapola. The shuttle of the sea moves back and forth on this line. All night, like the surf, she shuttles and doesn't fall asleep. Then her rosy fingers adorn and stitch the design. When you hear this chord, look for a swallow's wings—a swallow arrowing seaward like a messenger, passing smoke-blue islands, happy that the kings of Troy are going home. And its ten-year siege is over. So may blues drifts like smoke from the fire of that war, 'cause once Achilles was ashes, things sure fell apart. Slow striding Achilles, who put the hex on Hector, a swallow twitters in Troy. That's where we start. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk/use.